Wow. That was good. Mm-hmm. We could almost go home. Almost. Almost. Whatever. So we're just going to continue. We're going to jump back into uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And thanks for your prayers. My knee's great. Had no problems after the surgery. Actually, the knee felt better after the surgery than it did before the surgery. So I guess mission accomplished. And um, it's a good thing. It's nice having a real knee and not a fake one. So that's that's a good thing. And um, thanks, Dale, for filling in and enlightening people on the life of uh, Isaac. And we're just going to jump in where Jesus keeps going. Um, in verse 21 of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus now begins to talk about <clears throat> six different temptations that poison our heart. And... Um, Some would say he was trying to redefine uh, the commandments. But the truth is, he was helping Israel understand what the commandments really meant and what the heart of God was when God gave um, the Ten Commandments. And so he starts talking about um, the spirit of murder, which um, he says is anger in our hearts. And First um, John three fifteen says, "Whoever hates or harbors bitterness against his brother is a murderer." That's a that's a pretty harsh statement. To think that there is a, 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 an equality between hatred and murder, and murder is this. Um, in our, in our culture, according to our law, there are two definitions for murder. I mean, there's manslaughter, there's killing, there's, there's those different things. But there's first-degree murder and second-degree murder. And the difference between the two um, was premeditation. So first-degree murder means that you have purposed in your heart before you commit a crime, whatever you're doing, that part of your plan is to kill somebody before you go. Secondary murder is to be in the process of doing something and realize if I don't kill this person, they're going to tell everybody who I was. And so the intent is to kill, but it wasn't premeditated, it wasn't preplanned. To um, end somebody's life. So how can we take, how could Jesus say that hatred in our heart is equal to murder? And, and listen to what he says. These are Jesus' exact words. Matthew chapter 5. Beginning verse 21, Jesus says, You've heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell. Therefore, If you bring your gift to the altar and there's something that your brother has, and if you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you over to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid every last penny. So, Jesus talks about, the Bible tells us that Satan is a murderer. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So here's the thing. Satan wants our sinful weaknesses related to anger, to escalate to a stronghold of wickedness in our heart. He wants us to lose control of 
of our, um, of our inner self to the place to where anger becomes the motivator, the controller of our emotions and actions toward another. And this is about relationship. This is about the body of Christ. This is about whether it's brother, sister, husband, wife, co-worker. This is about relationship. So Satan needs our cooperation to poison or to imprison our spirit. So just because he puts something on us to cause us to feel anger, he needs our agreement with him to exercise our anger in order for us to allow him to move in and have full control of the situation. Satan, you know, Jesus is, gives us four principles here on how we're supposed to deal with anger. And let's just jump into these right away. Principle number one is whoever is angry is in danger of judgment in the courts of God and the courts of man. He says again, verses 21 and first part of verse 22. You have heard that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. So Jesus says that... The, the danger of the judgment of murder is equal to the danger of judgment for someone who has anger toward their brother that is not reconciled. I'm not, now, we're not talking about, I mean, we all get mad. Well, you all get mad. I never get mad. Um, we all get mad. We all get angry. We, we know what happens, and, and, and it does take willpower to control anger. There is a line that we can't cross when we get angry. And, and so God's intent of the sixth command when he said, thou shalt not kill, that word kill in, in the Hebrew actually means thou shalt not commit murder. Um, it, it, he wasn't saying you can't kill anything. He wasn't saying you're supposed to be a pacifist. You know, he wasn't saying that uh, there should be no capital punishment because the law said there should be capital punishment. He wasn't saying there should be no war um, against aggression toward you because Israel fought wars their entire history. You know, he wasn't saying that, that we should not protect ourselves. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking about heart issue. And the nature of anger is to grow powerfully in us, leading us to dangerous results. Um, this is what James says. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. You lust and you do not have. You murder, walk in anger, and covet and cannot obtain. So the measure of our anger is this. The source of anger in the life of a human being, believer or unbeliever, generally comes from unperceived pride. Pride is the root of anger in our lives. It is pride that causes us to lose control. Um, Paul says this, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. Now this word blinded um, literally means to be dull of intellect, to be blind, to make blind, or to exalt human pride. So Paul is saying, we are blinded. The God of this age, who is Satan, blinds us with dull intellect, um, stupid choices. I have no other way to say that. I was trying to think of a nice way. But dull intellect, making dumb choices. Or it, it is to be blind. In other words, to, to be so overrun with ourself, that we fail to see what's really going on in the circumstance. Or the other thing is to exalt pride. It is pride. When, we, when you boil right, you get right down to the bottom of the thing that causes anger is our pride. And, um, you know, this blindness, it's like a smoke screen that prevents us from seeing Jesus clearly. It's like, you know, something that is proud, that is high-minded or inflated with self-conceit and puffed up. It's like smoke that, that, that billows up and rises. And, 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 you know, it's hard to see through smoke. Um, you know, one, one of the things they used to use before we got all technical, one of the things of war they used to use to hide was a smoke screen. 
They would cause smoke so that they could hide from the enemy. So this type of smoke screen that rises up within us. So Satan uses the dumbness and the pride to blind unbelievers. But, but, he uses the same dumbness and the same human pride to, bind, to blind believers who try to justify their anger. See, there's no justification when we allow pride to move in and take over and cause us to act um, out of our flesh, out of our pride, as opposed to acting out of love and acting out of reconciliation. So the, 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 it's, it's, you know, it's the same sin that caused Satan to fall out of heaven. The same thing. Satan, who was beautiful, the Bible tells, Ezekiel tells us he was the most beautiful of God's creation, says that when he walked, he made music. I don't think it meant he was humming. You know, there was something about him when the air moved through him, when he moved, his very being made music. Most theologians believe that he was kind of the worship leader in heaven. And a third of the angels of heaven followed him. A third of the angels of heaven followed Michael. A third of the angels of heaven followed Gabriel. And all three angels, archangels, had different responsibilities. But Satan got so filled with pride, he said, I will exalt myself above the throne of God. I will make myself to be above God. I, the created, will make myself to be above the creator. That pride is the same pride that he uses in our hearts to cause us to submit and to give in to our urge to act out our anger. For that moment that this blindness, you know, you've heard the word blind anger. People become so angry. Anger comes in so much they can't see. They can't see beyond anything except themselves. Can't see beyond anything except their own pride. And that's what this word is all about that, that, that Jesus uses here. So the spirit of murder is unbiased and operates in the degree that we open up to it. And so, you know, we can honor social etiquette and be really cool in public and be a completely different person when nobody else is around. And so the principle number one, that whoever is angry is not only subject to the judgment of the courts of man. Um, there are a lot of people in prison today because they allow the God because to physical murder. But we're also held to judgment in the courts of God because our anger kills the spirit of other people. Just as a murderer kills the life or the body, the existence of a hu other human being. Anger is used as a weapon to kill the spirit in somebody else. See, anger is always comes out of our pride and is always aimed at somebody else. It's always something we're pointing to somebody else because we think we're right. I've, I've never known anybody to get in an argument because they thought they were wrong. When anger comes in, it's because pride comes in and we are convinced that we're more right than the person that we're in conflict or having conversation with. Principle number two, whoever speaks or acts with anger without repenting is in danger of judgment. Jesus says, whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So the consequences of this kind of anger results in a stronghold of anger that ends up becoming a resident in our heart. It, it ends up controlling how we think about other people and how we talk to other people. Um, it wounds others. Relationships are broken. Uh, negative circumstances increase. Raka or fool, these were insulting words that were comparable to calling somebody an imbecile to calling them an idiot, or to say they're stupid. And Jesus said those are not words that are intended to bring forth life. When we use those words, we're not trying to encourage. We're not trying to build up. We are trying to tear down. We are trying to murder the spirit 
of the person we're talking to. So here, and, and, and think about it this way. When we speak contemptuous words toward another person, whether it's a coworker, whether it's you know a, a, a family member, whether it's a spouse or a brother or a sister, what we're saying is we're implying that we are a more reliable judge of their heart, of their abilities, or of their value to God. When we begin to speak angry words, words like raka or fool, that we demean another person, what we're saying is we are a better judge of their character, we are a better judge of their personality, we're a better judge of their hearts, their abilities, we are a better judge of their value to God than they are. And therefore, we have the right to say those belittling, demeaning, murdering things because we think we know better than they do. And Jesus says that's not the case. Um, the spirit of murder operates, you know, in full capacity of its legal right when we open the door to it. It's, and, and Jesus isn't talking about what we think. That's a whole different lesson, you know. He says later, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Or Proverbs says that. He's talking about what we say. The conversation we have, the words we use toward other people. If you've ever taken psychology in school or you're taking parenting classes, one of the things they talk about um, as a parent, how our words can either build up our child or can destroy our child. A child's self-image a child's self-worth is going to be based upon how their parents, how those who are in um, leadership over their life speak into their life. If a parent didly speak that into him, the parent tells their child they're not worth anything, and they repeatedly speak that into him, the parent, according to Scripture, is murdering that child's spirit, is killing who God made that person to be. And that parent is saying, I know better who you are than you are. Or a, or a spouse or a, a, or a boss over a worker. I had a boss once who was like that. He could never say anything good about anybody. He could only tell them what they did wrong. He's the kind of guy you could, you could come in and he could say, I want, um, I want the whole billing system of our company changed. And the whole department could spend a whole month working on changing the billing system. And he would come in, and he would find the one thing that was wrong. And he would belittle and demean those people for not taking care of that one thing, as opposed to saying, great job on everything else he's done. And parents tend to do that. You know, parents who, who don't know how to speak life-giving words into their children tend to focus on the things they do wrong, as opposed to encouraging them in the things they do right. And so the, this, what we say and do gives legal access to either angelic or demonic powers to move, to be more active in our life and to be more active in the life of the person. We need to understand that when we speak angry words, when we speak those words that are murdering somebody else's spirit, it not only affects their spirit, it affects our spirit. Because we have opened the door for the enemy to have access into our heart to cause our words to speak the words he wants us to speak. And so this anger not only affects our spirit, and it also affects the spirit of the person we speak to. And so when we speak, we can either speak words of life, which I believe um, uh, invites and invokes angelic presence in people's lives, angelic protection. Or we can speak demonic words, telling people how worthless, how, how useless they are, and give room to the enemy to come in and to take not only dominion in our life, but here's the other thing. The person that we speak to sometimes will believe that lie. And so we have caused permanent damage to their life, to their spirit, to their character, because we've allowed the enemy to infuse our speech to go into their spirit and to cause them to believe something that's not true. And now we've given the enemy place in two people's lives. But the same thing is when we speak life into somebody's life, it encourages our heart. It also encourages the heart and the circumstance of the person we're speaking to. 
So godly words and actions shape our emotions, and angels, I believe, are more active in our life. Ungodly or angry and immoral words and actions shape our emotions and gives demons place in our life or the life of the people that we encounter. So we need to be very careful. We need to understand that anger is a spiritual matter. It is, it is a deeply spiritual matter. But anger is a choice that we make. It's not that we'll never be angry, and there's not a time that anger is not necessary, but anger that is used to bring forth righteousness as opposed to inflict unrighteousness. When Jesus overturned the tables the, of the money changers in the outer court of the temple, he did that out of righteous anger because of the immoral, illegal things that these vendors were doing in the outer court that was supposed to be the area of prayer for the Gentiles. So when he overturned those tables, he wasn't sinning. He was showing righteous indignation, and he was judging. Did he ever stop loving those people? No. Did he ever stop preaching to those people? No. Did he, ever, did he die for those people? Yes. But he took care of that moment. There was a necessary moment for anger in that situation. So we need to, principle number three is we have to act in the opposite spirit of anger or murder. And Jesus said with urgency. He's saying when we recognize that we have done something out of our anger, we can't sit with somebody else that has murdered somebody else's spirit. We can't sit around and mull over what should I do about it. Jesus said we need to respond to it immediately. Look at he says, therefore... If you bring your gift to the altar, so here's the context. He's saying to bring your gift to the altar, you have to be in the temple. To bring your gift to the altar, you have to be, for no better word, in the presence of the Lord. So Jesus is saying, if you are coming into the pre my presence, you're coming into the presence of the Father, and you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave that gift. In other words, don't spend time in my presence. Leave your gift there. And why would he say leave your gift there? Because if you take your gift with you, you might not come back. Leave your gift there, you're going to come back and give your gift. He didn't say present your gift. He said leave your gift there. He says before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift. So Jesus was pretty strong here. He says, look it, you can't have a loving relationship with me and at the same time have a broken relationship with your brother or your sister. He said it doesn't work that way. He said to have a loving relationship with me, you have to have a loving relationship with everybody. And if there's something in your heart that has broken that relationship and it's brought to your memory, even if you're not the one who caused the problem. Even if you are innocent, he doesn't talk about innocence and guilt here. He says if your brother has something against you, the implication is either has something against you because you've done something to harm him, or he has something against you simply because he has something against you and he doesn't like you. Whatever the issue is, go and take care of that. Be reconciled to that brother. Be reconciled to that person. Then come back into my presence. Then offer your gift and then I will accept your gift. And the premise of what Jesus is saying here is don't think that I'm going to accept your gift if you have broken relationship or broken fellowship with somebody because of your anger. Because you can't in one hand be, be death-giving and come into my presence and think you're going to be life-giving. You can't be both at the same time. You're either one or the other. So he says, take care of it quickly. He doesn't say, come into my presence, Give me the offering, sit down and pray about it, think about it, what should I do? He says, no, immediately leave your gift. Go out and fess that person. He says, therefore, so, you know, and, and he's connecting here what he had just said. He's connecting the word, raka and fool. So he's connecting, he says, therefore, he's continuing his thought. So we have to seek to treat our brother or sister in the same way Jesus treats us. Remember, he'd already told them, blessed is the peacemaker. Part of our calling is to be the peacemaker, not to be the troublemaker. We're to be the peacemaker, and we're to make peace in meekness and in mercy. And remember, meekness is strength under control. Jesus says, 
you have to exercise mercy before you receive merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So he's saying all that in a continuation of, of, of helping. Now, he's talking to Jews. He's not talking to Gentiles. He's talking to people who have been raised up under the law. He wants them to understand the heart of God. But it still applies to us today because it's, it's the word of God. It's living to our lives is that we have to understand that if we want these beatitudes to be fully functional in our life, to be peacemakers, to be meek, to be mourners, to be merciful, if we want that to be, if we want to be salt and we want to be light, then we have to understand it's in a complete package. We have to make certain also that we are in, in righteous fellowship with our brother and our sister, whether it is our children, whether it is our spouse. You know, we have gone through times with, with our children, one in particular, but on their part, because the fellowship was broken. Um, not on our part, but on their part, because they had been wounded by something in their life. And it took a long time for us to break that down and, and, and to help our child help us understand, come to a place of reconciliation, which we are totally great now. You know, and, and in that process of praying, in that process of going and apologizing, even for misconception perceptions that weren't true, going and apologizing, the Holy Spirit began to reveal in their heart things where they had made us the assumptions and wrong judgments. And so we need, he says, therefore, so we have to be the peacemaker, leave your gift, you know, which is our expression of love for him. He's saying, don't think you can come love me if you're not loving your brother. Don't think you can come love me even if you think you love your brother, but your brother doesn't love you. Go and do everything you can to be reconciled to that brother. You know, and then he says, first, we can't present our heart to God as a gift in worship if we're speaking anger to his children. He says, first, take care of your relationship with my children, your, your brother and your sister. It's impossible to be God's child without being a brother and sister of his children. So we're not an only child. We have lots of brothers and sisters. And this is about reconciliation with brothers and sisters. You know, one of the first pictures we have in Scripture, I mean, it's right at the beginning, is the story of Cain. Cain's problem was anger. Cain was angry at two people. He's angry at God because God rejected his gift. And he's angry at his brother because God accepted his gift. And so he, he, he was angry in two ways. And God sees it, and God has a conversation with Cain. In Genesis 4, it says, the Lord said to Cain. You know, and I, I don't know if it's a verbal conversation or if Cain hears it in his head, but as Moses is writing this, he's talking about a conversation taking place between Cain and God. And God's first question to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. He's saying anger, anger's desire is to consume you. Anger's desire is to pull you in to sin. And if you allow it to happen, you're not going to do well. But if you reject, if you refuse to allow anger to come in, you know, you can rule over it. So what happened with Cain? Cain is angry with God. He was angry with Abel. God saw. Now, this is before Cain has killed Abel. God saw Cain's anger and says, okay, buddy, what's going on here? You're pretty ticked off right now. And he says, you're about ready to do something stupid when you can do something right. And God was saying, look it, you can still make the right sacrifice to me. Go get one of your brother's animals. Come and make the blood sacrifice that I require, you know, and, and things can be cool. Things can be okay. So don't let anger rob you. You can still make this right. And so his countenance fell because he's disappointed, because of self-pity. His countenance fell because of pride. Cain was prideful. The same pride that caused Lucifer to fall is the same pride that he's inflicting into the heart, presenting to Cain right now. And God sees it, and God intervenes and says, look it, there is a solution here. 
You don't have to give in to your anger because if you do, you're going to regret it. And what does he do? He gives in to his anger. Becomes so angry with God, instead of making things right with God, he takes his anger toward God and turns his anger toward God toward his brother and he murders his brother. So God gives us hope in every situation. It's never too late to start over with God. He was saying, Cain, we can do this again. Let's clean the slate. Let's start over. Thanks for the fruits and vegetables, but let's, let's work on the right sacrifice here, and let's start over, you know? And so you can make good choices, follow through with good choices, because if you make the wrong choice, it's going to destroy everything. So if we yield to the root of bitterness, it's going to spread like a cancer into other areas of our emotional life, and it's going to lead to greater sin. Um, you know, and so Cain allowed anger to become a greater sin. Anger became murder. But Jesus is saying in the spirit, when we are angry towards somebody, it becomes as murder because we are destroying their spirit. We are trying to kill their spirit with our words. With the things we say, we are trying to be superior over them, to lord over them our superiority because of our pride and kill their spirit and belittle and do all we can because the more we can quash them, the higher we can become. And so, principle number four, we pay the full debt for the anger we refuse to repent of. And so Jesus tells a little story in the midst of this. Now, he doesn't say this is a parable. Most of the parables Jesus tells, he starts with the kingdom of God is like. So most of Jesus' parables were to teach us about the kingdom of God. In the midst of this teaching about anger, he throws in a short little story, which is something everybody in Israel understood and something everybody in Israel could relate to. So he says, agree with your adversary quickly. He says, and while you are away with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you're thrown into prison, assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid every last penny. So he's given an illustration that was a very common occurrence in the society, the, the Jewish society in which they were living. Um, in that time, they had what was called a debtor's prison. If you had a debt you couldn't pay, an officer of the court would come and and make, try and make an arrangement with you, an agreement with you, for you to pay off your debt. In other words, to pay the person you owe whatever it is. If that officer could not get you to come to some sort of agreement, and generally it's going to take, I mean, if the officers come, you obviously don't have the means within yourself to do it. So the job of the officer is to make sure you would go and find some means by which you could take care of the debt. If you couldn't take care of the debt, you were thrown into prison until the debt was taken care of. Now, how can you take care of the debt while you're in prison? You can't. There has to be brothers or sisters. There has to be somebody who comes along and takes care of the debt for you so that you can get out and you can reconcile that debt. And Jesus is saying, this is exactly what happens with our anger. When he says assuredly, he's you know, illustrating the point that we stay in bondage we stay in the debtor's prison until we resist anger. If we don't resist the urge to be angry, we will be like the person who owns a debt and can't pay it. We will end up in bondage. And so, you know, Romans 13.8 says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another. The only debt we're supposed to have, the only thing we're supposed to owe is love to each other. And, and the, the context of that is this. You can never love too much. You can never say, I loved you this much, and that should be good enough. No, debt, love is a debt that continues to be paid because Jesus paid the full debt. One another. So when he talks about prison, any who continue in anger are going to experience, like I said, emotional bondage. He says to agree quickly, we pay our debt of love by asking our brother to forgive us before things escalate. It, it is amazing, I'll just talk about marriage. 
it is amazing how quickly you can quash an argument when you say, I'm sorry, genuinely. <laughs> not say, I'm sorry, because you don't want to fight anymore, and you still, you're really not sorry. But to genuinely repent, to ask forgiveness, to take responsibility, nothing ends an argument quick, quicker than to agree with the one you're arguing with and ask forgiveness. That was Jesus' point here. Don't let anger move in and continue to keep you in bondage, continue to take you in, in control to where you become totally separated from that person because of the bondage of your anger. He says, agree quickly. You know, the consequences of bitterness and anger will not just go away until we deal with them. We can't just kind of say we're going to ignore them and hope they go away or pretend they go away. We have to let them go. And the way we let that go is like Jesus said, you leave your offering at the altar, you leave your love for God. When you come and say, God, I'm loving you, and he says, if you love me, go love your brother. You want to you show me how much you love me? Go be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and let's talk about our relationship. So our anger is our enemy. It is our anger that has the power to imprison us, to keep us in bondage. You know, he says, you're not going to get out. He says, that person will no, by no means get out until the debt is paid. Jesus is saying, the way out of spiritual and emotional debt of our anger is repentance. There's only one way to get out of anger, and that is to make the provision to ask forgiveness. And so he requires us to repent of anger in order to enjoy liberty in our heart with him and with our brothers in Christ. And he says, it has to be paid into the last cent. And when we look at the issue of anger and paying to the last cent, you know, this, this, we do this by repenting of anger in every area that the Holy Spirit highlights. We have to be in conversation with the Holy Spirit. When we go to our brother to be reconciled to them, we need to ask the Holy Spirit everything that we have done that we should take responsibility for. You can't, you can't do it halfway. There can never be a yeah, but when we ask for forgiveness. Yes, yes, I did that, but you misunderstood. No, that, 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 that eliminates it right away. The, and the thing is, in order to be released to that, we need to ask for forgiveness. And the one who's being asked to forgive needs to respond also and acknowledge that they do indeed forgive. So if, if I've done something to offend Emmy, which I would never do, except slide a piece of bacon into her salad. But, you know, if I did something to, to offend Emmy, when I go and say, Emmy, I'm so sorry, you know, I didn't mean to do that. You know, would you forgive me? She has to forgive me. I mean, the ball is now handed over to her court. If she says, no, I'm not going to forgive you, I believe you can still go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I've done all I can. I've taken responsibility. They won't release me. There needs to be this, the back and forth of, yes, I forgive you. Yes, I recognize. There needs to be, he says, you need to be reconciled. He doesn't say, you just go do your part and walk away. So if she says, no, I can't forgive you, you can't just say, fine then. I'm going my way. You have to say, okay, why? Why can't you forgive me? What else can I do to cause our relationship to be what it was? How else can I about forgiveness? And there needs to be this knowledge. What else do you need me to do in order to bring about forgiveness? And there needs to be this process to where you deal with your heart, they deal with their heart. We can be angry and not sin. I talked about that before. This is what Scripture says. Paul, when he writes to the church of Ephesus, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin go down in your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So wrath or anger wants revenge that desires to retaliate for the injustice of the offender. Um, sometimes we think we can get even, by avoiding the situation and walking away from it and not resolving it. That's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. He's saying, if you're in the midst of it, don't walk away from it and say, I'm not going to deal with this and leave it undone. You need to deal with it until it's done. You know, anger 
And, and he's talking about anger here that holds a grudge. You know, it's, uh, it's I read this line, and, and I had to think about it a lot of times before I wrote it down, but he says, revenge is often like biting a dog because it bit you. Think about that for a moment. It's pretty disgusting to bite a dog. The issue is not tit for tat, is not the retaliation. It's the process you have to go through to get revenge. It's, it's, it's a pretty disgusting process. You, you, have to, you have to mindfully put yourself into the situation to do it. And so, you know, it's an attack to not necessarily get even, but to get ahead. And so wrathful anger is always accompanied by an unforgiving spirit. And once you have that unforgiving spirit, Jesus says, here's the problem. If you have an unforgiving spirit, now you and I have a problem. Because, you see, I did everything necessary for my father to forgive you. There is no reason why you will, ne there is nothing you can do that my father will not forgive you of, save rejecting what I did for you. If you don't accept my love, you don't accept what I did for you, then my father is not going to accept you. But if you accept my work on the cross, if you accept the fact that I paid the price for your sin, there is no sin you can do that I didn't pay for. There's nothing you can say, nothing you can do. You know, probably the most, well, there's, there's a bunch of guys in there, but they just did a, a, a TV uh, special on, uh, on Ted Bundy. You know, he was a pretty sick guy. But Ted Bundy recognized the error of his way and Dr. Dobson led him to the Lord and interviewed him like a week before he went to his death, knowing he deserved to die for every person he killed. He know he, he, that he needed to pay the price for that, but recognizing that he could go to the death chamber with the confidence that he had been forgiven for what he had done, if not by the families, which he really wanted to be, he knew he was forgiven of God because he accepted the work that Jesus did on the cross was full payment for every vile thing that Ted Bundy had ever done. And Jesus is saying, if, if you don't think you can reconcile with your brother, don't come to me. You go reconcile first because I've already done everything to reconcile with you. In order for you to reconcile with me, you have to reconcile with your brother or your sister first. Don't come and say you can think you can say hey, everything's cool if you have bitterness in your heart toward your brother or your brother has bitterness toward you. You must be reconciled. You must be reconciled. You know the, the you know, felt it's like the, the the wrath that the Pharisees you know, felt toward Jesus. Because these guys had built their own religious playhouse. They had taken the law, and they had rewritten the law. They had taken the Torah, and they had modified it in the Talmud. And in the Talmud, they made up rules as they went along, and a lot of times they made them up to what benefited them the most. And so they had created their own little religious playhouse, and Jesus comes in and starts teaching the truth and dismantles it. So he stands before them and says, you've heard it said you shouldn't kill, but I'm going to tell you if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you're a murderer. And that just blew up their house. That blew up everything. I mean, they were, you know, they, they, they were dancing and prancing in front of everybody because they had given a tenth of, of the herbs that grew in their herb gardens thinking they should be seen as so spiritual. Jesus said, so when he started blowing up their house, the Pharisees got fighting mad. The Pharisees got angry with Jesus. In Luke it says, but they were furious and began to plot with each other what they might do to Jesus. And eventually the plot was to kill him. And they were able to kill him because somebody got offended with Jesus. Somebody made a way because of offense of not being reconciled out of their anger with Jesus. You know, there were two guys who followed Jesus who got offended by Jesus. One was John the Baptist. The other was Judas. 
John the Baptist, when he was offended because he got arrested, he knew he was going to die. John says, well, wait a minute. God said you're Messiah. I told everybody you're Messiah, and now I'm in prison. It looks like Rome's still, still in charge here. So you're really the Messiah, or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus said to John's disciples, go tell John what you see. The lame walk, the blind see, gospel's being preached to the poor, you know, um, the dead are being raised. And then Jesus says this, and tell John, blessed is he who's not offended by me. So John had to reconcile in his heart that the Messiah he thought Jesus was going to be was not the Messiah Jesus came to be. Judas had the same offense. Judas saw the lame walk. He saw the blind see. He saw the dead being raised. He was there when the gospel was being preached to the poor. He was the guy handling all the money. But Judas got so offended that Rome was still in charge and that Israel had not taken over with Rome that, that he became so offended with Jesus that he betrayed Jesus. So one guy gets offended and goes to his death for Jesus because he recognized who Jesus is and he reconciles in his heart not to be offended or not to be angry with Jesus. The other guy gets angry with Jesus, determines in his heart to not be reconciled to Jesus, to betray Jesus after Jesus is arrested, after um, he recognizes, oh no, what have I done? He tries to undo what he's done. The Pharisee said, sorry, buddy, it's a done deal. It's a sealed deal. And, you know, he throws the money back, and they end up buying a graveyard. And Judas kills himself. See, anger has consequences if it's not reconciled. John was willing to die for Jesus because he reconciled his offense in his heart with Jesus. Judas could not be reconciled until it was too late because he never reconciled his offense with Jesus. In fact, he not only betrayed him, he betrayed him with a kiss. Betrayed him with, a, with a, an expression of love. And so, <clears throat> here's three ways people handle anger. We'll wrap this up. First of all, there are those who try to repress it or deny it. In other words, they're angry and they think, if I just ignore this, it's going to go away. So they deny it's even there. And so... The, the repressor has, has seen or felt the destructive power of anger, so they're not going to be able to control their anger. They want to blow up. Uh, they're trying to avoid it. They know if they go and talk to the person, they're not going to be able to control their anger. So instead of trying to be reconciled, they just deny it and hope it's going to go away. You know, anger, if, if you've ever been there, maybe some of you haven't, is not something you can ignore. You can't just say, eh, I'm not going to worry about it. It doesn't go away. Even if you walk away from the circumstance and you deny that it's affecting you, that anger is going to go with you wherever you go. So there are people who deny it. They repress it. Then there are people who suppress it. So they're aware they're angry. They're not denying it. But they decide to hold it in. They decide, I'm not going to confront. I'm not going to deal with this. I'm just going to keep it in, and I'll just deal with it myself. And so they swallow the anger, and eventually... You can only swallow for so long. And eventually, the bowl is full and it blows up. Then you have this huge explosion. And generally, the result of that explosion is the murder Jesus is talking about. You know, this it, suppressed anger is, is generally, is, is eventually vomited out. And, um, and it's usually vomited out it may not even be on the person you're angry with. In fact, it's usually towards somebody who's less suspecting, somebody who wasn't a part of it. They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when you've hit the level and they've done one thing. You know, they, they've, I don't know, they've dropped your favorite coat on the floor. You know, and the next thing you know, you're vomiting everything on them that was the result of your anger at somebody else because you suppressed it. Then there's people who have no problem expressing their anger. Every time they get angry, anything that provokes them, they think they have the right to just let it go out, um, whether it's under control or not. And there is, there is ways you can express your anger under control to bring reconciliation. Okay, but there are those also who just think anytime they get mad, they can just blast you. 
They can just say what they want to say. They can just spew it out on you. They can wound you. They can hurt you. They can do whatever. And they can walk away because what you did justified what they just did to you. And, you know, most people blow it when they release their anger. Um, they, they put their mouth in gear before they engage their mind. And, in fact, Solomon says this. This is out of the Living Bible. He says, intelligent people think before they speak. So generally, and you can all agree or disagree, but generally we find that when we lose control of anger, um, our, our mind is no longer there. It's all emotion. We're not thinking about what we're doing. We're just allowing our emotion to come in. We're saying, okay, enemy, go ahead and push the button and spew it out. Okay, and so here's, here's how I think, and, and again, it's, these are just generalizations. They could be different for each person. Here's how I think we can express anger without sinning. Number one, um, we need to remember um, what's happened in times where we've experienced unbridled anger. In other words, we need to let past experience of the wrong kind of anger be a, an example to us on what not to do. So again, Proverbs says, intelligent people think before they speak. Think about the consequences of, of what you're going to say before you say it. And a lot of times, this, this is kind of how I work. A lot of times I work the conversation back and forth in my head. If I say this, they're going to say this. I'm going to say that. They're going to say that. And then, you know what? I'm just not going to say anything. And, and, and that really is, that's not to say that, that I'm the perfect guy, but a lot of times I avoid, there are times there should be conflict, and I still avoid it. But a lot of times I, I avoid conflict because I think about it. I think about tit for tat, what's going to happen? And so if there are times you have blown up before and you have injured or murdered somebody, remember that. Use that as a teaching experience. Use that as a lesson of what not to do. Ask the Holy Spirit, Please remind me when I get to this place again, remind me of what happened just now so it doesn't happen again. So, number one, remember the results of unbridled anger. Number two, reflect before you respond. When you start getting angry, delay your response, stop and think before you speak. Now, I know emotion is an incredible beast. When emotion starts to take off, it just grabs a hold of you and just throws you around. And, you know, it takes a lot of willpower to be logical when emotion is trying to tell you to be illogical. When emotion is saying, go ahead, say it. Go ahead. You know you want to. It's going to feel, go ahead, say it. But when you know you're not supposed to. So you need to, you know, stop and think before you react. So remember what you've done, and remembering what you've done, stop and think about what you're going to say or what you're going to do before you do it. And then thirdly, always respond in love. Love wins every time. Jesus said, greater love has no man than he lays down his life for his brother. Um, and then he says, um, there, there is the love of a friend that is greater than the love of a brother. You know, so he's talking about a love where you're willing to die to yourself in order that you might cause the other person to live. You know, when he says greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his brother, we can apply this regard to anger. Greater love has no man that he will restrain his anger and he will be reconciled and in doing so lays down his life for his brother so that his words do not murder or wound his brother. This is another verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 21, 23, again in the Living Bible. If you want to stay out of trouble, be careful of what you say. Um, th there are times as a child I wish I, I remembered that. You know, when your parents have corrected you, you've been in the argument and they said it's done and you're walking out the door and you're just going to get the last line in. You're just going to say that one last thing. And the moment you're saying it, you're going, oh, shoot. I know what's coming now. 
and I live in the generation of capital punishment, so um, I knew it was coming. Um, use sweet words because you may have to end up eating your words. I'd much rather eat sweet words than eat bad words. So, and it's easy to talk about anger when we're not angry. It's easy for me to say, remember the last time you blew it? Use that as an example not to do again. It's easy for me to say, when you feel it welling up and you know you're about to do what you did last time, think it through, think about the conversation. Maybe you don't say anything or find something to say in love that is going to cause the circumstance to be simmered down and for there to be reconciliation. And think before you speak. Think before you speak. Do not allow emotion. Because again, we are laying down, we are, we are showing love to the person that we are in conflict with by shutting our mouth. We are showing love by restraining our words, by not using our anger to say, I'm, I'm smarter than you, I, I know more, but to stop back and say, I know more about the situation, and I'm going to say what I'm going to say to you right now. But to stop back and say, I love you enough that I'm not going to say the hurtful things. I'm going to find a way to say a loving thing to love you. And, and I, I guarantee this. If you ask the Holy Spirit, you know, every day when I, when I and I said this last week, I, I literally do. I have to. Every day, as I start my day, when I sit down in my prayers, I read a prayer that I've written about putting on the armor of God. I do it every single day. And I can tell you, the days I don't, I mean, the days I do, they're still tough days. I mean, it doesn't mean it's a perfect day, and it doesn't mean that just because I said I'm going to carry the, the shield of faith, that I don't set that shield down and go do something stupid. But I am mindful of it every day. We, there, there needs to be mindfulness that says, God, let me walk today in love. Let me walk today not in a spirit of murder, but in a spirit of life. Let me walk today. I mean, we are all appalled right now. We better all be appalled or we're going to maybe have me being angry and sinning not. Um, we're all appalled right now on this whole movement to be able to kill babies after they're born. Are we not? Okay. Spiritually, it's the same thing that happens with our words when we exercise anger towards somebody who's already alive. We're killing them with our words. There needs to be the same appallingness in our heart toward using words to destroy people as there is as we listen to politicians telling us that because of a woman's health, you can kill a baby after it's born. Don't even get me going. It's just so ludicrous, so evil. So vile, so perverse, but so is uncontrolled anger. It is evil, it is vile, it is perverse. And Jesus recognized that. I think that's why that's the, this is the first thing he talks about after going through the Beatitudes, after talking, us, talking about us being salt and light, and that he didn't come to destroy the law to fulfill the law. He says, okay, here's number one. Speaking of the law, let's talk about the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. The next commandment he talks about is uh, which I think is the, the second thing that has destroyed our culture. I think sexual sins are the worst sins because they destroy so many people. But he's gone from anger to adultery, and, and we'll talk about it next week. But he says, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you think it in your heart, you've already done it. And so you can see while the Pharisees were getting pretty upset that Jesus was knocking down their, their little spiritual playground because everything they had set, he just blew up. He said, guys, it's not because you went to bed with her. It's because you thought about going to bed with her even when you didn't. Or vice versa. It's not just guys. Okay. So, so Jesus begins to deal with what are the real issues in the heart of people. And the first thing he addresses is anger. So I think it was pretty important to Jesus. Anger in the sense measured against love. He's saying, look it. You want to come love me? You want to bring your offering to me? I want your offering, but you better make sure you love all your brothers and sisters before you come to me. So go take care of it, then come back to me. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that your word is truth. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask even for every person in this room here right now, God, if there's something that is not reconciled with a family member, um, maybe they haven't spoken in years and, and they've given up trying, and, and um, uh, maybe it's something they did or didn't do. We're just asking, Holy Spirit, if there's anything that needs to be revealed with, as far as reconciliation, we ask that you would do it. We ask, God, that every effort would be made. You know, Scripture says, make effort to be at peace with all men. God, we're asking every effort would be made to be reconciled. That we would not walk around with bitterness or resentment, which boils into anger, which boils a family member. We'd be reconciled, whether it's a friend, a family member, a former family member, um, God, we just ask that Holy Spirit would reveal to us anything that needs to be done so we can come freely before you and we can walk in freedom. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.